John chapter 20, the resurrection. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture and he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped, stooped into and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced it to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he had said these things to her. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, church. This is our second service for today, and I am all the more rejoicing. I was saying in the first service that we were pretty much soaking in the presence of God, uh, and I hope all of you tuning in online, you're experiencing that right where you're tuning in from, because before I just continue to feel the rejoicing of this day. We celebrate this day because of what happened, what truly happened in history. We're not celebrating a legend. We're not celebrating uh, just simply stories that are not based on any evidence or historical fact, we are truly celebrating an event that changed the world forever. And as we were rejoicing, I felt that we were really engaging with the saints all in heaven and on earth to really praise the King of Kings who is seated on the throne. That is ultimate reality right now. 
Jesus, the King of Kings, is seated on the throne. And if you felt that joy, just know that that joy is the emotion of heaven. That joy that we experience in his presence is the emotion of heaven. At the heart of the Christian faith is this miraculous historical event of Jesus' resurrection. That's why even today, 2,000 years after the event, we are still gathering and celebrating. You see, as a Christian, I sincerely believe that Jesus died for our sins and then he was buried. And then on the third day, he rose again in bodily form and he appeared to eyewitnesses. You know, with our modern sensibilities, it's hard to talk about the supernatural things without people sussing you as somebody who's perhaps a little bit weird. It's hard to believe that supernatural miracles can happen, let alone happen in the 21st century. Whenever our church would hold a Q&A, we welcome questions. I grew up in the church and I am grateful for parents who never rejected my questions about God. They welcomed them. They never enforced their faith, but they allowed me to discover a personal relationship with Jesus for myself. And so as a church, we welcome questions. And since also leading the youth from about a year ago when we would hold Q&As, One of the most popular questions that would pop up almost every single time we release a survey for a Q&A would be, well, hasn't science disproved Christianity? That's a frequently asked question about the faith. Now, I don't know if that's where you're at today I don't know whether or not you grew up in the church or whether you're completely new to all this, what your questions are. But God is not insecure by your questions. He's not afraid of them. But can I propose to you, could it be, okay, this is somewhat philosophical, could it be, that something impossible is also rational. Could it be? Could it be that something that is unimaginable to what we would think or what we would naturally conceive in our minds, could it be, though, that if it still happened, it's still rational? Let me take it. Further, the God of the Bible is the God who created the universe. Can I propose to you, if you were to believe in any God, 
It should be an all-powerful creator God who didn't need to be created. Otherwise, it doesn't make him God in that sense. So could it be that the creator God who created this universe and therefore made the laws of nature in the first place, could it be that he would time to time defy that very law of nature just to prove his existence as the all-powerful creator God? Could it be that science does not disprove Christianity, but in fact, the fact that things are not necessarily all explained or outside of what we would think is natural, in fact, proves that a creator God does exist. Could it be? You know, we modern people, we tend to think that people of the ancient times, like especially 2,000 years ago, perhaps they were a bit more believing of the supernatural. Perhaps where they were at in um, their understanding of philosophy and their understanding of the world, they'd be more open to superstitious things. They'd be more open to all these supernatural events that might happen. And so maybe people of those times were more readily willing to accept the idea that somebody could be raised from the dead. Maybe that that was just something that was happening, a trend of those times, and everybody was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm going to read, I'm going to share with you, actually not read, because I'm just going to recommend this book. Uh, There's a New Testament scholar by the name of N.T. Wright. Now, what makes him unique in the Christian world is that he's not just a theologian, but he's also an ancient historian. Okay, so he's not just uh, somebody who uh, avidly studies the Christian faith. He also studies history, uh, world history. And in his book, in the resurrection, the resurrection of the Son of God, I recommend it to anybody who has any questions about this topic. He actually makes the compelling case that the report of Jesus' resurrection would have just been unthinkable to the people of those times as it is to the people today. It would have just been as unimaginable. Perhaps they did believe in different superstitious things, uh, superstitious things, but the idea that somebody would be raised in bodily form from the dead is actually against their natural uh, understanding of how the world was. He explains, Professor N.T. Wright, that neither the Jews uh, nor the Greeks or Romans in the first century actually thought that this would be possible. So just like us today, they would think that it's just as impossible that somebody could raise from the dead. In fact, they had very different ideas of what the afterlife would be like, these school of thoughts. In the Greco-Roman thinking, they would believe that the soul or the spirit, it was good, okay? It was inherently good. But 
the physical and the material world that was weak and corrupt. And so their idea of salvation would be that the soul and the spirit would separate from the body in the afterlife. And then these souls would then live in eternal happiness of some form. So the idea of a bodily resurrection was unthinkable to them. In their understanding of what salvation should be, they're thinking, well, why would a God do that? Why would a God enter the body again? That doesn't make sense. Don't you want to be separated from the body forever, out of this world forever? Now, the Jews, on the other hand, they saw the material and the physical world as part of God's good creation. So they loved this world. And they thought that death was in fact a tragedy. They thought that if I was to leave this world, that sucks. And so, so by Jesus' day, a lot of the Jews had then come to believe that, okay, God will one day bring a resurrection, okay? But that's going to happen on the very, very last day. And so what happens is human beings live in this world, enjoy it, then they die, and then one day, at, on the last day, whenever God decides, He's going to resurrect everybody, and then God's going to make this new, perfect world. All right? He's going to make all things new on that last day, and then we can live with eternity, in eternity with God. And so if you were to approach a Jew or a, a Greek uh, during that time, and you would say to them, hey, so-and-so has raised from the dead. Their immediate response, much like what we would probably respond today, is that's crazy. Are you sure? That's, that sounds absurd to me. So Professor N.T. Wright, he actually argues that the resurrection was equally unimaginable to the people of ancient times as it would be to most people Today. Now, we can observe this, actually, in the biblical accounts that we just read before. We can see this. The Gospels, uh, Ivan read before in the book of Matthew, and then Nicole read before in the book of John. These Gospel accounts, they don't show the disciples expecting the resurrection at all. Despite Jesus telling his disciples over and over again, I am going to die. I'm going to die. And then after three days, I'm going to be raised to life. He kept on telling them. He didn't keep it a secret. It wasn't a surprise that he wanted to like, ta-da. It wasn't that at all. He kept on trying to warn them that that was his plan. That was God's plan. And despite that, we don't read of these disciples camping around at the tomb on the third day. They were not waiting in front of the stone. Just when, when is it? He didn't say what time. When is it? When, when would the stone be rolled away? They weren't expecting it. In fact, even Mary Magdalene, who was passionately devoted to her teacher, when she sees the tomb empty, her first response is to run. Is to run and to be concerned about it. Right? 
he, she doesn't even consider the possibility, oh, this is what Jesus meant. He was going to rise from the dead. And he look, she, she doesn't look for Jesus. She runs and she goes and tells the disciples. Her interpretation of the tomb, in fact, was this. They have taken the Lord. Somebody's taken him. And we do not know where they have laid him. And when the risen Jesus approached her face to face, she didn't immediately recognize him. Yes, he was in a new bodily form, but she had spent years with him. I mean, he wouldn't have changed too much for her not to recognize him. But she thought he was the gardener. She was not expecting this miracle to happen. None of the disciples were expecting it. You see, God's salvation plan, it did not fit her expectations. So although she was looking right at the risen Jesus, she couldn't see him. What expectations are blinding you from seeing what God is doing in your life? What expectations do you have of this world that blinds you from what is truly ultimate reality? That God is alive. Timothy Keller makes this comment. He says, we seek spirituality, but the human heart always wants a God who fits with our desire. A God we can control, who doesn't challenge our self-assessments and our narratives. But the message of the Bible is that God never fits human categories and conceptions of what he should be. He's God. He decides. He's not supposed to fit in his creation's expectation. Despite Jesus repeatedly warning his followers of what was going to happen and why it was necessary. Like he didn't say, oh, by the way, I'm going to die and rise again. And that's it. No, he was properly explaining it to them. If you read in these gospel accounts, Jesus was even preparing them for the death and resurrection. But his sudden arrest and the execution still came as a horrible shock. And after Jesus' death, the disciples were actually meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. My question to you is what then made the disciples suddenly come to the conclusion that Jesus' death was not a defeat, but a triumph. What made them flip from being terrified disciples, grieving over their Savior's death, to disciples who would then spread the news about the Christian faith? What happened? You see, if you don't believe in the resurrection, 
you've got this hole in the story about how the church started and the Christian world faith blew up. And it's actually a problematic hole. It's not just something that could be accounted. Like it's a historical problem if you don't consider that the resurrection actually happened. The only way we can make sense of the sudden birth of the church and the explosion of the Christian faith is that these disciples really saw Jesus. They saw Jesus crucified. They saw that he was buried. And they saw him in bodily form risen again. You see, none of them, can I remind you, were expecting that to happen. None of them could have made it up. Because it was just unthinkable. They knew that that kind of story would be absurd. They're like, okay, well, if somebody was to rise from the dead at the end of time, that makes sense. But not in the middle of history. The only reasonable explanation for how these disciples' lives transformed and the world transformed was that they really saw the risen Jesus. If we look at the historical evidence, take a moment to, to focus on that. The first records of the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses are actually found in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Okay, uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 6, I'll read out what he would have read out publicly to the church in Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more, get this, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time. Most of whom are still alive, though some had fallen asleep. And what he means by that, they've passed on. Now, these letters were not letters to just leaders to be read publicly in a, in a leadership meeting. These letters were meant to be a public document read publicly. Okay? And every historian has agreed that Paul's letter to the Corinthians was written about 15 to 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. 15 to 20 years only. So by saying that Paul was inviting people, look, Jesus had appeared to about more than 500 witnesses. He was inviting the people, the congregation, to fact check him. He's saying, I am not presenting you fake news. This is not fake news. I welcome you to fact check it. In fact, most of the people who saw the risen Jesus personally, they're still alive. And he actually uh, lets them know to go and find them if you really want to hear their accounts. Now, you have to see it this way. If 
there had only been reports of an empty tomb, but nobody saw Jesus personally, then it would be fair to conclude that Jesus' body was stolen, which many people have believed. Okay? So somebody really did take his body, okay? Or if people had claimed to see Jesus, but then the tomb was not rolled away and there was still a body in the tomb, then it would be fair to assume as well that these people were not really telling the truth. You know, we hear it all the time that when people deal with grief, they see their loved ones in the spirit. And that's the way humans sometimes do deal with grief, and that's okay. But what we have to understand is that there was an empty tomb, and there were people who really saw Jesus. This evidence needs to be considered together. And so it shows us that we have reason to believe that this was really a historical event. I welcome anyone to really go and look at the historical evidence for yourself. Study it. And I'd like to make a note. Another important detail is that all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they reported the resurrection, they actually reported that it was a woman or women who were the first eyewitnesses. Now, in our modern day of thinking, we won't think much of that. We're like, okay, cool, yeah, that's great. But Rebecca McLaughlin, who is an apologist, she wrote this book called Confronting Christianity. And she asserts that in contemporary Jewish culture, the testimony of women was, de- was not deemed credible. Women were so low in the social status that whatever women said was not believed. Okay? There is no way that if anybody wanted to make up the story, no way that if the gospel writers were reporting this story, that they would have chosen women to be the key witnesses. There's no way. In fact... Some historians have argued that it would have been hard for the church to read the eyewitness accounts as is because it mentioned women. But they had to because that's actually what happened. You know, that would be like resting a vital legal claim today on the testimony of a few kids. That's what it was like in those days. So the only possible explanation for why women were reported to be the first eyewitnesses was that it's true. That's actually what happened. They really saw an empty tomb and they really met the risen Jesus. And I would like to say that another question I tend to get on a side note is people tend to ask, doesn't the Bible denigrate women? Let me put forward to you that the Gospels were actually very countercultural for their time. You see, despite the social norms for how women would have been treated in those days, God elevates women. He values them, making them the first eyewitnesses at the resurrection, at the most significant event in history. 
So, how does this historical reality of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago, how does it affect our reality today? Let me say to you that it changes everything. If Jesus, the Son of God, really did come, He died for our sins, and then on the third day, He rose again, if that really happened, it changes everything. It changes everything we know about this world. It changes everything we think we know about God. And it changes everything we think we know about this life. You see, it's very common for Christians to believe that the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? It proves it. But then that's it. There's nothing more. It doesn't actually change the way they live. It doesn't affect their daily life. But the resurrection or the truth of the resurrection, it completely changed the lives of the first Christians. Completely changed it. Many even died for the faith. The early Christians, they believed that when they saw Jesus, okay, he wasn't just a resuscitated version of his old self. Yes, he had wounds, but it wasn't just his old body being resuscitated to life. He, they saw a transformed, perfected version of Jesus. This was the kind of body, all right, that would walk through walls. He appeared to the disciples. He didn't go through the front door. He just appeared. He could walk through a wall, but he could also eat breakfast with his disciples. This was the kind of body that the Jewish people thought God was going to give us at the end of time. This was the resurrected body that they thought was coming in the age to come. You see how revolutionary this is. God's plan of redemption was not going to happen at the end of time. It had begun at the resurrection. The fully resurrected body of Jesus shows us that God had launched his new creation already into this world. In Jesus, heaven came down. In Jesus, the kingdom of God begun its reign on this world. That changes our reality dramatically, whether we believe it or not. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. You see, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it showed us that the strongest power in the world is not the one who sits at the White House or who sits on any presidential seat in this life. The strongest power in the world is not the wealthiest, the one who has the most money. Strongest power in the world who's not, is not the one who has the most weaponry. In fact, even under all that, the strongest power in the world at the time was the power of death. Because the truth is, everybody experiences death. Death is an expected reality for us human beings. But you see, 
at the resurrection, God defeated death. God defeated the strongest power in this world, in this age. He unleashed his power. He let loose his kingdom reign and power into this world. And you know what that power was? It's the power of self-giving love. It's the power of forgiveness. That is the strongest power. That is the power of God. And the Bible says that if you believe that Jesus died and rose again for your salvation, you will be united with Christ in His death to sin and in His resurrection to a new life. You will be made a new creation. That's not going to happen at the end of time after we die. It happens the moment you believe. That spiritual resurrection is happening today. The kingdom of God has already invaded the earth. So Christians, how do we live? We live with this new power now. We live with the same power that resurrected Christ from the dead. We live with the same power that defeated the grave. What is that power? It's self-giving love. It's forgiveness. Sometimes we underestimate how important relationships are to us. As beings created in the image of God who is relational by nature, relationships are essential. And we don't realize the impact broken relationships can really have on our lives. We don't realize that. In fact, when we hold to offense, when we choose unforgiveness, that bitterness rots us up from the inside out. It really does. And then it unleashes feeling of loneliness, feelings of rejection. But you who are in Christ, you have resurrected to a new life. You live by the power of God's forgiveness. You can live with the reality of forgiving. You can flourish in this life by not holding to offense but by forgiving, by self-giving love. You know, in this world, everybody is competing with one another. I always think, think back to the theory of, um, it's just flew out. Maybe I'm not supposed to talk about it. But it's, you know, when um, survival of the fittest, that's what I want. You know? That's really a very popular thought. That in this life, it's survival of the fittest. But do you know what that causes us to do? It causes us to treat one another as competition. We don't look at a, at a person. We don't look at them and say, I've got to love them. We've got to look, I've got to be better than them. I've got to get ahead of them. I've got to take from them. 
And that kind of selfish, self-centered way of life, it actually rots us. Why? Because it causes us to have really bad relationships in our lives. But Jesus died and rose again. And in Him, you can live with His resurrection power. You can now live with His love in this world and flourish the way Jesus did. Jesus is showing us how to be a a new human. And that power is available to anyone who believes in Him. You are a new creation. So I'd like to end with this letter, with, this, with these words from a sermon by Professor N.T. Wright. Because the resurrection of Jesus happened in history, this gives us infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. We're living by a greater power. It's the power of love. In the sermon, he said, the message of the resurrection is that this world does matter. God has not abandoned this world. We're not waiting for this world to rot away. And then one day God's going to make all things new. He's already doing that now in us and through us. This world matters. The injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. At the cross, Jesus won it for us. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me finding a new dimension of the personality of my personal life. It's only about bettering myself. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news to the world. And we become a force because it's the kingdom of God that we belong to. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such a thing. Our God is not silent about the issues of the world. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read the news and I'm thinking, how are people capable of that? How is that possible? How do people treat each other that way? And it's so easy to to sit on a high horse and think we're better. But the Bible says we were born in the same condition. It is only in the resurrection of Jesus that we can be raised to a new life and live life according to His love. We will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. You see, if you take away Easter, and Karl Karl Marx was right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of this world. If you take away Easter, Freud was right to say Christianity was probably just a wish fulfillment. But Easter did happen. And so saints, as we stand to our feet, let me read to you the words of Jesus. Let's stand to your feet. You belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people. 
because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. In Jesus' name.